on November 30th, 2013, what has been called the single greatest moment in college football history took place on the final play of the game between the University of Alabama and Auburn University. With seven seconds left in what appeared to be the last play of the game, the Alabama football team gave the ball to their star running back who went around the left side and was knocked out of bounds by Auburn defensive back Chris Davis with one second left on the clock. That one second gave Alabama a final opportunity to kick a game-winning field goal. Had Davis tackled him in bounds, then the clock would have run out in regulation time. Auburn would have had the advantage of having a home field game as well as the momentum from the fourth quarter. It was a mental mistake, and it potentially cost Auburn the game. Now they had to face the last-ditch effort of the number one team in the nation, the defending champion, Alabama. As Alabama lined up for the kick, Auburn's defensive coordinator decided to send Chris Davis back into the end zone just in case the kick was short so that he could catch it and maybe have an opportunity to return it. Well, that's exactly what happened. The kick was short. Davis fields the kick nine yards deep in his own end zone and runs 109 yards with no time left on the clock to give Auburn the victory. From a tie of 28 to 28, the game was won 34 to 28. In that one event, which sports writers call the most amazing play in the history of college football, what Davis, the defensive back, did to put his team in a very difficult position, Chris Davis, the kick returner, more than made up for by going the whole distance to give his team the victory. His misstep, his failure was overcome in superabundant ways by an unlikely touchdown. Well, that great moment in college football history is a faint illustration of a far greater moment, indeed the greatest moment in all of human history when Jesus Christ overcame in superabundant ways the failure of the first man, Adam. This is what Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 teaches us. We've been looking at this passage over the last several weeks, recognizing that it is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it, the very heart and center of the epistle of Romans. So today we're going to focus our attention on verses 15 through 17. But in order that we might gain the context again and be able to understand the, the movement of Paul's argument, let me start reading in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. You follow along and we will go down through verse 21, though our text will be verses 15 through 17. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Adam lost because of sin, Christ more than recovered because of grace. This is what the Apostle Paul is arguing in those verses 15 through 17 that we're going to focus upon this morning. But before we look into those verses, let me remind you of the structure of Paul's argument that is found in the passage that I just read. He begins in verse 12 to make a comparison. We see that in the language at the beginning of the verse when he says, just as. Well, when you start a sentence with just as, you end it with so or so also, unless you're the Apostle Paul and you decide to take a little detour and drive down to make some points clear in that first part of your thought. And that's exactly what he does in verses 13 and 14, where he explains how sin and death that came as a result of Adam's sin continued in the world throughout history, even that history that predated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And then at the end of verse 14, when he mentions Adam by name, he says that Adam is a type of the one who is to come, speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned in our last study that a type is an Old Testament person or action that foreshadows the future. So what Paul is saying is that Adam is a type. He is a foreshadowing of Christ, but not in the common ways that we think of Old Testament typology as it relates to Jesus Christ, not in the way that David was a type of Christ as a great king, not in the way of Jonah, who was a type of Christ that was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish and then came out to finish his mission, but rather Adam is a type of Christ in the sense that he, like Christ, is the representative, the covenant head of a race of people. God established him to represent people. As the first man that God created, God commissioned him not to live simply a private life, but rather to live a representative life representing the whole human race. Therefore, his disobedience to God cast not only himself into sin and death, but the whole human race with him into sin and death. Well, Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, came into the world as the second man or the last Adam. And God commissioned him to be the head of a new race of people. A people who wouldn't just be born physically, but who would be born again spiritually and who would be recreated by Christ. 
There are vitally important differences between Adam and Christ, though Adam is a type of Christ. And Paul wants to make sure that we don't overlook those differences in the text that we're going to focus on this morning. So when Paul announces at the end of verse 14 that Adam is a type of the one who is to come, a type of Jesus, he immediately interrupts his thought again and gives us what we have as verses 15, 16, and 17 to elaborate the contrast between Adam and Christ. And what he says about the differences between Adam and Christ is that what Adam lost because of sin, Christ more than recovered because of grace. He makes this point by setting Christ and his work over against Adam and his work. And as we read through verses 15, 16, and 17, you'll see that Paul wants to make sure that we're not missing his point. He wants to make sure we understand what he's doing. He he does so by twice stating that the work of Christ is not like the work of Adam. You see that in verse 15 and in verse 16. It is not like what Adam did. Let's look at three ways that Paul highlights the differences between Adam and Christ. The first difference we see in verse 15 spelled out, and it has to do with the character of their actions. How do you characterize what Adam did, and how do you characterize what Jesus did? Well, Paul does it very simply. He characterizes the work of Jesus, you see, as the free gift. And he characterizes the word the work of Adam as the trespass. Now, the trespass, we know, obviously refers to that sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden when he did precisely what God told him not to do, and he ate of the forbidden fruit. The free gift, this is Paul's description of the life and work of Christ. This phrase, free gift, appears in our English Bibles five times in our text. It characterizes the life and work of Jesus. You see it two times in verse 15, two times in verse 16, and one time in verse 17, where it more accurately focuses upon the results of Christ's life and work. Paul speaks of Christ's life this way, and he does so in a similar way in verses 18 and 19. If you just look there for a moment, you'll see that he describes Christ's whole life, everything he accomplished as one act. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness. That's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 19, he goes on at the end and says, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So whereas Adam's life and work is summarized as sin, Christ's life and work is summarized as grace. We see God's grace in Jesus Christ emphasized again and again in these verses by the words that the Apostle Paul uses. The free gift, as I've said, appears five times in our English Bibles. But actually, that phrase that is five times in our English Bibles, it translates two different words in Greek. The first word is the word charisma. You hear it, charismatic is in that word. It's built upon the Greek word for grace, charis. It means a gift of grace, a grace gift. The first occurrence in verse 15 and the second occurrence in verse 16. 
use this word. But three times there's a different word that Paul uses, and it's the simple word for gift. Well, if you receive a gift, it's always grace. When you put in a full week of work and you get a paycheck, you don't treat that as a gift, do you? You earned it. But if someone shows up at your house and says, hey, I've made dinner for you and you're not expecting it, you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, what do you do? You say, well, thank you. This is, this is grace. This is a gift. So Paul, using two different words, wants to underscore the, the free gift by the grace, as he says in verse 15, of Jesus Christ. God's grace is further described in this passage by the way the Apostle Paul goes on to qualify it. Do you see two key words, two key phrases in verse 15? He says, much more, much more. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace brought life. Verse 17, if death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life with him. Much more. Adam did this because of sin. It had incredible consequences. Christ did this because of grace. It has incredibly greater consequences. And then the second phrase is that phrase or that word abundance or abounded. We see it in verse 15. He says that the free grace, the free gift by grace abounded for many. It overflowed its banks like a river in flood tide. And he uses the same language in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What is Paul's point in speaking this way about Christ's life and work characterized by grace and Adam's life and work characterized by sin. He's underscoring the fact that the salvation, the justification that sinners have before God through Jesus is completely by grace. It's all grace. And if you've not discovered this yet, you will, if you take God's word seriously. Grace is hard to handle. It's hard. It's hard to believe that God could love you and God could save you and God could keep you completely by his grace. Why? Why is it so hard? Because it's so unlike everything else that we experience in this world. We learn lessons growing up, don't we? There's no free lunch, right? What does that mean? Well, if you want to eat, you better work. Or if you want a full day's pay, you need to do a full day's work. You get what you pay for, what you deserve. If you want to reap, you better sow. Well, those are true things. That's the way God made the world to work. And the sooner you learn that's the way God designed the world to work, the better your life is going to go. But it's often hard. To shift from the way the world works to the way God works in saving sinners. And so very often we carry the mentality that we've learned growing up in this world in our thinking about what it means to get right with God. I mean, it only makes sense, right? 
The Lord helps those who help themselves, right? Wrong. That's what we hear. Or if I want God to accept me, I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta be good enough. If, if I want to be sure that God will love me and keep me, then I, I've got to stay on the right course and I've got to bring my best game so that I can hold it up to Him and say, God, see? And yet grace wipes that all completely away. And God saves sinners, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we can ever do anything to account ourselves worthy of it. He saves sinners by grace and grace alone. If you don't get that, then you'll be tempted to relate to God with thoughts like this coming through your head. You know, I hope God will accept me because I've done the best I can. I, I, I hope God understands that, you know, I'm not as bad as most people. I hope God realizes that, that I've done a lot of bad things, but I've done a lot of good things too. I pray. I try to read my Bible. Go to church once in a while. I give my money. If those kind of thoughts have come into your mind, you're not alone. Because many people try to relate to God exactly on that basis. But, but, this passage of God's word tells us that you must remove those thoughts from your mind and you must take God at his word and realize that the way God saves sinners is by grace alone. The only way that God will accept you is by you receiving what Paul calls his free gift of grace. How do you receive it? By taking God at his word. Just believing what the book says. And when God tells you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that it is only in Christ that you can find forgiveness, you believe it and you turn from your sin and you bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. By nature, yes, we all come into the world as sinners because of our relationship to the first man, Adam. His sin implicates us. That's what verse 12 says. But by the grace of God, in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, we can be rescued from sin. We can be forgiven. We can be justified by God forever because Jesus came into the world and reversed all the failures of that first man. And he did that by completely obeying where Adam completely failed. And having obeyed God's righteous commandments, Jesus then took the sins of his people upon himself and he stepped into our place because we are lawbreakers and we have sin that we must pay for, that we cannot pay for apart from an eternity in hell. And he submitted himself to death on the cross under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, experiencing hell on our behalf so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him might be saved from wrath by grace. So the question is, are you trusting Jesus Christ as Lord? Is Christ your Lord? Are you depending upon Him 
as your righteousness before God, your right standing before God? Are you counting on Jesus making you acceptable before God? If not, friend, God has you here today so that you might hear this incredible good news from this portion of His Word and hear Him call you to turn away from everything you've been dependent upon and come to Jesus Christ by faith. Believe Him. Believe Him. And have God accept you for His sake. Well, after contrasting the character of their actions Paul goes on to explain, secondly, the consequence of their actions. What's the difference between what Adam's sin resulted in and what Jesus' righteousness resulted in? Well, in verses 15 and 16, we see that because of Adam's sin, many died, judgment came, condemnation came. But because of Christ's obedience, grace abounded and justification came. Adam's trespass brought devastation to humanity. Verse 15, many died through the one man's trespass. This is simply a summary of what Paul has already said in verses 12 through 14. As the covenant head of the human race, when Adam sinned, he brought death into the world, not simply for himself. He brought death into the world for everyone who was in him, all who are his covenant children. He died spiritually in the moment that he ate the fruit. And he began to die physically. Why? Because what is death? It's separation from God. And when Adam sinned, that relationship he had with God was severed. Because we were representatively in Adam, you and I come into this world plagued by original sin. We come into this world spiritually dead with the seeds of physical death in our bodies. And this is why people die. It's because we're in a world of sin. Don't be thrown off by Paul's use of the word many here. He's not suggesting that there are some who will escape this fate in Adam. Rather, he does throughout this passage what he's doing here. He makes the point contrasting the one man and the many. The one man, Adam, and the many affected by what he did. The one man, Christ, and the many who are affected by what Christ has done. And so we teach our children, in Adam's fall, we send all. Why? Because Adam represented the whole human race. And his sin and the consequences of his sin have been imputed to all of us. Well, along with death, Adam's sin also resulted in our judgment and condemnation. Speaking as the result of Adam's sin, verse 16 says this, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So in addition to death, Adam's rebellion brought God's judgment against him that resulted in condemnation. Condemnation is a declaration by God. It takes us to the scene of of a courtroom. I love what John Murray says about this. Condemnation is the judicial sentence which pronounces us to be unrighteous. So we're in the courtroom, God's courtroom. We have been charged with capital crimes of which we are guilty. The trial is over. We're simply waiting for the verdict. And the judge leaves his chambers and comes back into the courtroom and takes his seat behind the bench. And he reads the charges against us. 
And then he drops his gavel and he issues the judgment guilty. Guilty. You're condemned by the law. You've lost all your rights and standing now before the law which you have violated and you have forfeited your right to live. Brothers and sisters, that is the condition of every man, woman, and child by nature. That is the way all of us come into this world. It's because of the consequences of Adam's sin. It has brought death and judgment to the human race. That's why things are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. We're living with the consequences of the fall. Because Adam, our covenantal head, our representative broke God's law, neither we nor anything in this world is the way that it is supposed to be. The way it was originally designed. It's a tragedy. God's good creation was marred by sin. God's highest creation, mankind, made in His own image, commissioned to represent God in His world, ruined by sin, subject to death, under condemnation. But that's only half of the story. That's the part that Paul sets forth regarding Adam in order to provide the contrast of the good news he wants to tell us regarding Christ. Adam's trespass resulted in devastation, but Christ's redemptive work results in justification. Do you see this in verse 16? Listen to the way Paul makes the contrast. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's what happened with Adam. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Christ's work is abundantly greater than Adam's work. Christ's work is a free gift. It's undeserved. It's holy of grace. Christ's work follows many trespasses. Whereas the consequences of Adam's work came as a result of only one trespass. Christ came into a fallen, sinful world. It was and is a world of rampant wickedness, of uncountable trespasses. Christ's work has brought justification. This has been Paul's theme since chapter 3, verse 21. Justification by grace alone through faith alone. Children, what is justification? It's God regarding sinners as if they'd never sinned and granting them righteousness. This has been Paul's burden for these last few chapters in Romans. He wants us to understand that for Christ's sake, God has forgiven us and granted us righteousness. We are no longer accountable for our sins before God. How does Christ do this? As the eternal Son of God, He came into the world as a real man. Like Adam, He was without sin from the beginning. But unlike Adam, Christ lived a full life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. 
he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law. And having earned righteousness as the representative for his people, earned righteousness for his people, he willingly submitted himself to death on the cross to pay for the sins of those people for whom he earned righteousness. He took our sin upon himself and he carried it to the cross and he paid for our sins. Listen to the way Paul succinctly states this in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, when he announces the theme and then begins to elaborate the theme of justification. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God gave us Jesus to justify us. Well, how does Jesus justify sinners? How can we receive Jesus Christ and the justification that is in him? How do you get it? By faith. By trusting him. How can you be forgiven of your sins? By faith. By trusting Jesus. How can you be justified before God? Only through faith. Brothers and sisters, never forget this. Never forget this. Yes, we hate our sin. Yes, we must fight to put sin to death in our lives. But do not for one moment think that your battle against sin is the basis on which God accepts you and forgives you. You are accepted. You're forgiven forever on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done. Well, we've seen the character of Adam's and Christ's actions. We've considered the consequences of their actions. Finally, in verse 17, I want to point out to you the continuing significance of their actions. Well, with Adam, death reigned. In Christ, believers will reign. This really, verse 17, is a simple extension of the consequences that Paul has already spoken of in verses 15 and 16. Notice how hard Paul pushes the consequences of Christ's work forward toward eternity. He says in verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now the contrast between Adam and Christ in terms of their ongoing significance of their work There's a startling twist in the contrast that Paul makes in verse 17. He says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Now, there's no surprise there. It's exactly what he's been saying for this whole passage. This is a reiteration of verse 12, verse 14. Sin's universal. Sin's inescapable. Death proves it in the reign of death over the world. The world is a realm of death. It looms over us. Nobody escapes it. Nobody can avoid being touched by it. Now, we might expect, Paul, in making the contrast between death reigning to say something like this. As death reigned through one man, how much more will life reign through one man? Yet that's not what he says. There's an important twist. 
He says, as death reigned, much more will those who receive grace reign. I love the way one writer put it. The opposite of the reign in death is the reign of Christians who do what Adam was supposed to do. Who will reign? Those who are in Christ, as Paul puts it in verse 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. The grace provided in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The righteousness that becomes the possession of those who are justified by that grace. How is it received? By faith. By faith alone, not doing but believing. What does it mean to reign in life? It means to live right now in possession of that abundant life that Jesus said he came to give in John chapter 10, verse 10. It means to live victoriously, confidently in the world, knowing that all things belong to Christians because of Christ, as Paul puts it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23, when he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. That's what it means to reign. It means to understand and believe that right now, you in Christ are seated in heavenly places. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, verse chapter two, verse four, it means, as Peter says in first Peter two, nine, that if you're in Christ, you're a part of a royal priesthood. You're royalty. You're a kingdom of priests right now and forever. It means, as Paul will elaborate in the next chapter, especially verse 14, that sin no longer reigns over us. Yes, it remains. Yes, we have to continually fight against it, but it doesn't dominate us anymore. It means that the devil can no longer dominate us either because as James 4, 7 tells us, if we resist him, he will flee from us. Why? Because we're so strong, so good? No, because we're in Christ. We belong to him. It means that all of this is a foretaste of that which is yet to come when Jesus will return to judge the earth and all those who are in him will hear him say as he speaks in Matthew 25, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what it means to reign. How do you get in on this? How do you experience this life of reigning? You experience it in Christ. We will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All of this, all of this is in Christ. And so the most important question that you can put to yourself today, the most important question I can encourage you to think about today is, are you in Christ? Are you? If you trust him as Lord, yes, you're in him. If you're not trusting him, then no, no, you're not in Christ and you need to get in Christ. How? Not by doing, but by believing right now where you are. Trust him. Trust him. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
doesn't matter how religious you've been in the past or how irreligious you've been in the past. Right now, Christ is yours if you will trust Him. God will save you as you turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must remind ourselves of this regularly as we live in a world that is broken, fallen, that manifests sin in so many ways, as we see sin in our own lives, we should remember that everything that Adam lost because of sin, Jesus Christ has more than recovered, all because of grace. So do not fret over your standing before God. Trust Christ. Do not worry that you somehow will lose your grip upon Jesus Christ. By faith, God has His grip on you. And He will never let you go. Accept the fact that God loves you completely. He is for you forever. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Live in that hope that belongs to the children of God who have the Lord Jesus You do not have to fear death. You do not have to fear hell. You do not have to fear the devil himself. You don't have to fear people. Why? Because you are Christ's. Christ is yours. And in him you are more than conquerors. So go and live like the royal priesthood that you are. Go and reign with Jesus Christ in this life. Knowing that that reign will continue forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us and giving us the scriptures. Our desire is to be people who submit our lives to the word. And we ask now that your spirit would come and help us to do exactly that. That you would Seal your word to our hearts. I pray for people who came in this room today unconverted. And ask that you would humble them. And reveal Christ in them. And grant them your grace in the crucified risen Savior. For we ask in his name. Amen.